I'm Bay, and you're listening to Bay Baltimore, a weekly pop culture and society podcast recorded in a quiet neighborhood in Baltimore. This episode, I'm going to talk about <laughs> the first three episodes, loosely talk about the first three episodes of Winning Time, uh, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, um, one of the latest HBO um, is it HBO or HBO Max shows? Anyway, that that show. But first, I want to circle back around and talk about um, just briefly the last episode of The Gilded Age, um, the most recent episode of Abbott Elementary, and I think there was another show that I wanted to talk about. But oh. RuPaul's Drag Race, this latest, this latest, and just briefly, just this latest, these last two episodes, um, excuse me, the last three episodes, no, was it the last, yeah, yeah, the last three episodes, all right, so let me, well, let me get RuPaul's Drag Race off my chest, okay, so, um, I don't even know what episodes we're on at this point, but if you've been watching the show, um, you know that last episode, last week's episode had a monster showdown because it was following the snatch game. The pre- the the previous full episode was the snatch game and everybody did poorly except for one um, queen whose name I cannot remember. Dag, I cannot remember, but, and, and well is a relative term because if you do okay, or if you're mediocre in a sea of people who are bad, then you tend to look good. And I'm not trying to be rude about that. It's just What's the queen's name? I can't remember, but there's a particular queen. Let me just speak in this. If you watch the show, you know who I'm talking about. If you don't watch the show, it doesn't matter. Just know this scenario. Snatch Game is notoriously hard. Snatch Game is notoriously hard. And I'm, for as many years as I've been watching this series, I guess, I guess to RuPaul, an element of being a drag queen is also being an impersonator to be funny. Someone who's uh, uh, some who's who can be funny, um, and you. From my perspective, this is just from my perspective. Looking at the show, what gets the based on the challenges, and then ultimately, who wins? RuPaul prefers folks who can, uh, excuse me, sing and dance. You don't have to be the best singer and the best dancer, but you have to have a stage presence. You also have to be funny. Um, You also have to do impressions. You also have to have a thick skin to be able to withstand all the myriad challenges that are thrown your way. And you have to be a diplomat. Apparently, all the people that are winning, that have won, are some variation of a diplomat. Even, oh, it was right there on the tip of my tongue. I'm frustrated. Um, what's the name of what's the name of the queen that Tyra? Even Tyra, remember how Tyra wasn't like they were going back and forth, whoop whoop whoop, but like Tyra did everything that was needed to be done. Impersonations, acting wasn't the best impersonator, but the act the acting challenges, funny. Bob the Drab Queen, remember acting challenges, funny. Um, 
I remember a comment from Michelle Visage saying that um, that Bob's aesthetic was like around the way girl. And I really remember being offended by that statement, but I kept it to myself because at the end of the day, your persona is what your persona is. And Bob the Drag Queen, their aesthetic has really improved since being on the show. But if you look at that show, they were focused the entire time. Every single winner is a focus the entire time, a diplomat to a certain degree, even when people are coming for them. And in Tyra's case, like multiple people were coming for, for her and still made it out. Bob the Drag Queen, still Raja. Remember Raja? Um, early, I recognize that there's probably another drag queen that had the name Raja in their title. But when I'm saying Raja, I'm talking about the Raja from California that was South Asian. Um, that was tall and lean and that didn't wear pads, that Raja. Anyway, Raja was portrayed in a certain light as a mean girl for that season that they won, um, where they won. And, but again, acted, had everything, like had everything, right? And so what am I saying? So you're, you're coming back to this most recent season and they laid an egg on that stage. Everybody was terrible. Even the person that won wasn't really that great just compared to crap. They were awesome. And and I'm, that's not to say that, oh, to discount what they were doing. It's just, I didn't particularly find what they were doing funny. I think the the drag, uh, the the queen played um, Lil John. Lil John ain't funny to me. I grew up when Lil John was being exploited and exploiting himself with Dave Chappelle. That was funny then. It's no longer funny now. It's the equivalent of doing Rick James the way that Dave Chappelle to me the way that Dave Chappelle did it. Um, we're making fun of Rick James and Rick Rick James was in on the joke. Well, it's the equivalent of doing that early aughts those jokes now it's not funny anymore it's been done like it's been done you know what I mean so but whatever in comparison at least they gave a at least they gave you something to look at something to aspire to something to critique these other folks were just there you know what I mean and so um Prior to that, prior to the Snatch Game episode, there was a very boring episode where they were supposed to be hosting a drag con. And I'm like, who thought that was a good idea to host a conference as a challenge? But I, and looking back on it now, I understand why they did that. Because in a show that's been on, how long has RuPaul's Drag Race been on? 16 years? something like that, some ridiculous number like that, you have to keep being innovative. And I bet you was playing that that drag con episode was supposed to be just a snoozer so that it could build up. So you could already be a little bit frustrated and like ready for entertainment in the snatch game and be completely disappointed that everybody laid a big fat egg except for one person. And then set up this huge elimination because if you've been watching them, what you know, and I apologize if you were trying to wait to bootleg it or something like that, but I, I promise you, I haven't ruined the, I haven't ruined the experience. I've told you what's happening, but I haven't ruined the experience for you. So you should still watch the thing. Anyhow, so here comes the elimination portion of Snatch Game and one particular queen wins, right? Because they, the one that, that played, um, I keep wanting to say E-40, the one that played Lil John. that particular queen wins because their performance was hands down far and away much better than everyone else's. 
So they step to the rear. You know how it goes. The winner steps to the rear and everybody else is dismissed as safe or what have you. Well, RuPaul decides that nobody else is safe because that was such a lackluster performance, just a terrible turnout. And again, what fans of the show say, what Ru themselves say is, you know that Snatch Game is coming. You know it's coming when you audition. You know when you get this thing that Snatch Game is coming. You know when you think that you're going to audition. You know that Snatch Game is a part of this. Because the formula is unchanged. You're always going to act. You're always going to sing and dance at some point. You're, you're going to have to work in groups at some point with probably people you don't like. You're also going to have to do impersonations. Even if you're not great at it, start being good at it now. Also, you're going to need to have to sew or really be crafty. Like these are all staples at this point. It's too many seasons for you not to know that when you are when you are auditioning so that when you do get the call, you should be prepared because you're you know this. You should. It's been on long enough. Hey, it's been on long enough for people to be in middle school now being on the show as an adult. That's how long the show has been on. So you 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 have all the notes. You should apply them anyway. And look at me just being. So critical. Anyhow, um, but I digress. And so I think this is a setup, but it's a, it's a good setup too, because I bet you that if you check the Nielsen ratings on the show, I bet they went through the roof because she eliminated everybody or not eliminated, but she put everybody up on the chopping block having to lip sync for their lives, except for the queen that played um, Lil John. Anyway, so that's how the, so it goes the lackluster jo- uh, drag con performance and then the snatch game um episode ends with a bang like everybody but the one the winner has to lip sync for their life you're going to do a lip sync battle and then the very next episode is something completely new and innovative which kudos to them kudos to RuPaul because after so many seasons like it's hard a competition show it's hard to be innovative and that's pretty doggone innovative but in order to get there you had to have the two lackluster episodes, which probably I wonder if after the DragCon episode that for Snatch Game, the ratings plummeted a bit. I don't know. I don't actually know how the Nielsen ratings work. Like if you turn the thing off like mid show, does that still count as a rating or do you see like a decrease in the ratings? Do you know what I mean? Like, I I don't know how that works. I I do wonder how it works because that I didn't even finish that episode because it was so boring. I promise you, I didn't finish. I, I was watching it live too, and it just not live, but like when it aired, when it premiered, and I didn't finish it because it was boring. And then Snatch Game, I always get secondhand embarrassment when I watch Snatch Game, honestly, because again, we know this is coming, the performers know it's coming, and yet, and yet. So I often like. What I end up doing is I pick the person that I know is probably going to do okay. And then I fast forward to their interaction. And I'm usually, I usually am able to avoid a lot of the secondhand embarrassment. I was not able to do so successfully this episode. Um, I did catch the queen. I'm going to remember that queen's name. I am going to remember that queen's name. Um, Cause now I have to do a detour. Um, Paul's season 14. So it's been on for 14 seasons, 14 years, long enough for you to know better. All right. All right. All right. Come on with the names. Okay. Come on. uh, Contestants. 
Okay. Is it Deja Sky? It's not June Jambalaya. June Jambalaya is gone. I don't think it's Alyssa Hunter. Alyssa's gone. No, it's Deja Sky. It's Deja Sky. Or is it Jasmine Kennedy? No, no, no. It's Deja Sky. Deja Sky didn't do... Yeah, yeah, because... Wait. Fresno, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's Deja Sky. Deja Sky did not do a really great impression to me of Lil Jon, but, like, it was passable in comparison to everybody else's. Everybody else was awful. And so anyway, so Deja Sky is just watching in the in the elimination episode where it's like the, the battle for your life, battle royale episode. I forgot what Rue called it. But anyway, uh, I probably could have looked it up, but I did not. You see how I did that? Anyway, um, so Deja is just sitting in the, the, the relaxing room. I forgot what that that well, that room is called. But anyway, sitting in the relaxing room, watching TV, watching these uh, queens battle, which... That's the life. Like, if you got to do anything, I'd rather just be sitting on the couch watching y'all battle, not standing up, because I bet you those dogs are barking at that point. So I'm like sitting with a cocktail watching y'all fight and battle. And so I think the most genius thing about this, most innovative thing is not just that it was a battle, but like it was like a survivor sort of battle. Like um, if you won, you got to go sit down with... um, the queen whose name I just said. Um, but if you lost, you had to keep standing up there and you had to battle again in the same episode, probably within the same couple. I don't know how much time has elapsed during the battles, but like you had to keep fighting for your place there, like literally fighting through dance battles. And it was good. Now, do I think that everybody who did win should have won? I don't know. I think there's a piece of me that thinks, and maybe I'm just being naive when I say this because probably everybody knows this, but I actually think RuPaul has favorites that they want to advance. And so what they wanted to happen was to have, let me go back because now I got to get the names right. What they wanted to have was Bosco, Bosco compete against, um, what they wanted was Bosco to compete again. What's that? Uh, Orion? No. Orion's... No. Uh, Alyssa Hunter? Man, not Maddie Morphosis. Diabetic? No, not diabetic. Ah. Uh, not June Jambalaya. Not Alyssa Hunter. So who's left is Will, Willow, Willow Pill, Lady Camden, George. Oh, Georges. Bosco and Georgia. No. Willow Pill, Lady Camden, Georges. Georges is Latina, though, isn't she? Deja Sky, Diabetic, Bosco. Bosco's gone, but who did Bosco compete against? I'm silly. I'm, <clears throat> I cannot remember, but two white girls. It, she wanted... RuPaul wanted the two white girls who were sort of kind of mediocre a little bit, Bosca, Bosco, and another person whose name I have forgotten. I think it's, I want to say, I want to say, no, Georgia's is the little Latina. And it's not Diabetti. Is it Jasmine Kennedy? 
No. So who's left? Angeria Paris Van Michaels from Atlanta. Diabetti from Springfield, Missouri. Deja Sky from Fresno, which is De- Deja is the one that won, like didn't have to lip sync. Georges was the, I think just Georges. Um, Willow Pill, Willow Pill. There's a person I'm missing. I'm not, it's not coming to me. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not coming to me, but, um, yeah, cause it says eighth. I'm, there's somebody I'm missing anyway, but they wanted the two, I think RuPaul wanted the two white girls to like dish it out because they were both kind of a little bit basic. Um, but like had talent, but like a, still a little bit basic and Bosco ended up winning, which I think I like that outcome. But Lady Cam did. I didn't think she like killed what she did. But anyway, um, and so I, I, I believe more and more into the talk that perhaps, perhaps RuPaul does um, pick favorites. Anyway, I have talked about RuPaul's Drag Race enough. Um, I think it was genius to have to have the um, limit to, to have these last couple of episodes be what they are. I think after 14 seasons, you have to find a way to continue to be innovative, especially since you also have all stars where you have to be innovative there. You also have other iterations of the show where you have to be innovative. So I just, uh, smart move. Cause those last two episodes were stinkers, except for, yeah, the, the leading up to this elimination episode, those last two episodes were stinkers. Um, so anyway, Interesting. All right, let me switch gears really quickly. Um, oh, hey, Kay, I had to come back uh, real quick. I got a, um, I got a phone call. Anyway, um, all right. So let me let me round the corner with the season finale of um, Gilded Age and then talk about Abbott Elementary, just real briefly. Um, Okay, so, well, let me talk about Abbott Elementary first because maybe the the lead-in will be a little bit better to the main show that I want to talk about today. Anyway, um, so Abbott Elementary comes off of the mid-season break, which I thought was pretty weird because it premiered like in September and then it went like weeks without another episode. And then in December maybe November, December, something like that. The show pops back up again and you start watching the progression of the show and then it takes a mid-season break and then it comes back with this episode. And so so after the mid-season episode, what you know up until this point is that the principal is awful. Janine, who is just a go-getter teacher, um, it's you've got these quirky teachers this new guy that comes in that wanted to be the principal but didn't get it because the actual principal or the person that did get the principal bribed the superintendent for the job and so you kind of have these dynamics and then you have sexual tension between the guy that well I guess NBC wouldn't say sexual tension so much as it's love interest and romantic tension Anyway, um, so Gregory is the guy that came in and wanted to be the principal but didn't get it because uh, Ava, uh, Principal Ava, um, who is not qualified for the position, but who blackmailed the superintendent um, to get the job. So she's there and he's bitter. And then he meets, um, oh, uh, the, the main title, 
anyway, so blah, blah, blah. The romantic. No, hold on. Well, now I got to get it right. Now I have to get it right. So Abbott Elementary. Let me get it right. So Gregory is the guy that wanted to be the principal, but is just a, a teacher. Quinta Brunson plays, uh, and that's played by Tyler James Williams. I've already been through all of that anyway. Um, Janine. So, so Gregory, Gregory is, um, Gregory and Janine have romantic tension and blah, blah, blue. And then you've got Barbara Howard and Melissa and Jacob who are in there doing stuffs. Um, anyway, blah, blah, blah. We come back from the break to this episode. So the, before the break, the last episode was Janine seeing the good in, um, principal Ava, who's entitled and selfish, but also is taking care of her mother and blah, blah, blah. By the way, does anybody else think that, um, principal Ava, like the, like she's supposed to be a Zeta, right? Like we know that she's supposed to be like her, the sorority that she's talking about is supposed to be Zeta. I actually think the woman that plays, um, uh, Ava, uh, Janelle James, I think she might be a Zeta. Um, if you know, you know, anyway, but, um, yeah, cause, cause the colors were blue and white, right? Anyway, um, that's just refreshing to see in sitcoms that you're seeing divine nine sororities represented represented that it'll be cool if, um, you know, I am looking forward to a sitcom that will, you know, Delta has been represented. You can't, obviously you cannot say the name of the organization because that you will get sued unless you are unless you were just really cle- clever. Like, I am not convinced that um, Issa Rae, like, I'm not convinced that there's some under the table litigation happening or some under the table conversations happening because the way that they used AKA paraphernalia and did not get permission, like nobody trademarks the colors. You can't, you can't trademark a color. Well, I guess you could, but like, why would you? That's, that, that's a stupid move. Um, so you, the colors, you could do whatever, but when you start using the letters, that's where it becomes a problem. Um, and so I'm not so sure that the organization did not, is not, did not have any talks with, um, Issa Rae and her people because nobody on that show, to my knowledge, is a member of that organization. So anyway, um, and it's probably, it might be this way too for Abbott Elementary that Principal Ava is not an actual member of Zeta Phi Beta, but like she's got the colors in the background and it's part of her, it's part of, it's part of who she is, which is real because every single principal I know, most principals I know are members of the Divine Nine organization. The black ones, I'm talking about black ones. Come on, I'm talking about the black ones. Go ask, go look. Almost every principal or the assistant principal in your child's school, in your nieces or nephews or the, your, your ladies, their schools, um, any, your relatives, if they're black, uh, it's a 50, 50 chance. It's probably more, more than 50% chance, um, that they are part of a Greek organization. It's just the way the thing goes. It's, it's the way it goes. Yep. Anyway, um, shoot, I got so many teachers and administrators in my chapter. It's dumb. And it's all, it's all like that. It's all, well, Sigma and Rose Sorority Incorporated was founded by teachers. So it stands to, you know, it makes sense that there would be a whole bunch of members of that organization in the schools because we were founded by teachers. But like all of the organizations, 
ultimately have education as one of their foci, areas of focus. And so um, anyway, it's just good to see this because it's real. Like you cannot not have somebody connected to the school, especially in the principal area, you know, principal, assistant principal, what have you, and them not be Greek, especially if you're going to a black school. That's just nearly impossible. Anyways, I just thought it was cool, though, even though they're, they're playing it smart by not putting the letters in there because then they don't have to have any agreement with Zeta Phi Beta Sorority Incorporated because um, it could be up for interpretation. But if you know, you know, it's blue and white. She's a Zeta. Anyway, um, but no. So anyway, it, it, le- it ends on a funny note with Janine and Ava kind of teaming up to lead a step show um, at the school for the kids and Janine defending Ava and saying she's not a terrible person and then coming right back to Ava trying to getting a visit from the school superintendent it's it's parent teacher day um and or parent teacher night and so uh and also the superintendent decides to do a drop by to on Ava and Ava the whole time is speaking real cocky because how she's blackmailing the superintendent is she saw him engaging romantically with a woman that wasn't his wife. And that's how she initially got um, the job. Um, But when we fast forward through the episode, we come to learn that maybe that's not the leverage she thought it was going to be in in moving forward. And at the end, she thinks she's going to lose her job. Also, the thing that's really weird that I guess happens or is supposed to happen in something like that, this a sitcom like this, is that Gregory ends up going on a date with somebody that's not Janine. And we both know that Janine and Gregory have some sort of, they have a love thing. And Janine has just left her boyfriend, which played by Zach Fox. So I don't know. I was unsatisfied with this episode, but... I'm still interested to see where this thing goes because are they going to do it like The Office? Like, I didn't really watch The Office like that, but I know that there was some tension between two of the cast members, two of the characters, and for seasons, you know, there was ups and downs and them getting, being partnered with other people and then them coming together finally at the end and all of that stuff. Like, are we about to do that? Because Abbott Elementary is more to me than Janine and Gregory's love story. Like, that's cute and everything. It's real cute. Like, I appreciate it. But, like, I'm interested to see what the heck happens with Principal Ava because she's the fun. She is one of the most funny people on that show. Janelle James is funny. Janelle James is stupid funny. And everybody else is interesting, too. But, like, she's really, really funny. And so I'm wondering how they're like that. She is the Michael, the Michael, the Michael, the version, whatever. She's like the Michael of that show. Michael is the boss from from the office, I guess. Anyway, yeah, she's like the Michael of that show. And so you can't have that show without your Michael. So I wonder how she's going to stick around because it's clear that some things are going to change um, and change quickly. So I'm interested to see what happens with Abbott Elementary. I um, just celebrate Quinta Brunson and her victory in getting this show greenlit. Quinta Brunson is super funny. So I'm looking forward to these next couple of episodes, but I get the sense that we're about to do this will they, won't they thing. And that's never been my thing. Of course, I don't really love romantic comedies. So, or rom, yeah, romantic comedies or romantic films, but I do read me some romance novels. I am not ashamed to admit it. 
Mm-mm. Nope. Anyway, um, I digress. Like I got a gang of them. Just for every for every one really thoughtful, you know what I'm saying, book from um, like Octavia Butler or what is it, Tarantata? Tarantata. I never say her name right, but Tarantata. Do her for every one of those books. For every one of the um, have y'all ever read the Seven Killings of uh, Bob Marley? Watch that, or watch it, read it, read it. It's really good. I'm sure I've talked about it before. But for every like good Afrofuturistic book or really good book written by a black person that's really provocative or or, or thought provoking, um, or just just really just not out there, but like is a is a lot of fodder for conversation because it's just so wild. I've got like five romance novels. Maybe not five, maybe one. Maybe it's a one for one scenario. But I definitely have been reading a ton of romance novels. And let me tell you, it all has the same tension. It's just you go about it different ways. And I will tell you this. I do appreciate those authors that are putting in mental health as part of... Um, like really seriously talking about mental health in a smart way or talking about neurodivergence in a smart way. Um, there's a British author whose name I cannot remember. Um, I think it's the same author that writes the get a, uh, I can't remember, but she's a British author and maybe I'll, if I remember, I'll share the, the name. But anyway, there's some pretty good black authors that are writing some interesting things. The last romance novel that I read was Getting His Game Back. And it was about um, the love interest who has the body build of like a bomb basketball player, just tall and all of those muscles and stuff. He's living with crippling, debilitating um, depression. Um, And so how the end is a little bit lackluster for me because it's a romance novel and command. But at the same time, like there's some really good meat there. It's smart. It's a smart book. You should read it. Um, and then I've read some others that are not so smart. They're just steamy. Yeah, I mean, and you know, we're here for the steam. Um, but yeah, but like I'm trying to redeem myself, but there's no redemption there. They're just steamy books. And so I have to read like the good ones. Is it Tara not a, uh, what's, what's her name? You know who I'm talking about. If you like read Tara Nada do. I'm saying her name right. I'm saying her name wrong. Come on, books. Books. No, no, no. Author. 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 Girl, I can't spell. Author. Tanariva. Tanariva. Tananariva. Tananariva. That's what her name is. Tananariva Priscilla Du. That's your full name. Girl, that's a name for you. Anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, shoot. I'm about to tell you. Was it The Living Ghost? I can't remember. But anyway, I'm reading one of her. Let's do bibliography because now I'm mad. Um, are we going in order? Or are we going by genre? Dad, going it. We're going by genre. Um, ghost, ghost summer, ghost summer stories. I'm reading that. Um, 
and what's the other one then I have not read living blood yet although I probably should um what the heck is patient zero probably should read it okay what are the other works no so I am just reading ghost summer I thought I was reading another one of her books but I'm just reading ghost summer from her um anyway um but yeah so like Uh, Anyway, um, and I'm reading some other folks. I just can't think of them right now, but she's, I I read her, I read, I started to read Ghost Summer yesterday. So that's why it's fresh on my mind right now after I finished (laughs) getting his game back. So anyway, um, I said all of that to say, I do read romance novels. I just don't want to see that junk on TV like that. You know what I mean? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a hater. Anyhow, I'm interested to see where the show goes because I'm going to support this thing regardless. It's just, please don't make the major piece about this show be that love interest piece because I can't take it. Anyway, let me move on before because I'm just talking, talking, talking at this point. And I need to get to what I'm supposed to be talking about, which, by the way, if you are not a basketball fan, hang in there because there's a story here that you need that is interesting. So let me just put a pin in that when we talk about winning time. Um, But anyway, so let me talk about the Gilded Age. So if you've been watching this, the series, you know, Bertha, Bertha Russell has been trying to muscle her way into the 400, the elite crowd in um, New York. And she's been having ups and downs. And in the process, her husband, George Russell has bankrupted some people to the point where they took their own life out of shame. Um, and he's been accused of having, through negligence, killed a bunch of people and harmed a bunch of other people. And he's had to defend his name all while Bertha is trying to like tiptoe around these hoity toity people. It's such a vapid show, to be honest with you. Like, the only reason why you, this show is literally about social climbers. That's it. It just happens to be social climbers that. I mean, there's nothing really redeeming about, well, social climbers that in the process of climbing and, and preserving and gatekeeping who's in the upper stratosphere of society also were the builders of the um, of New York and largely builders of the United States at the hand. But also, let's be for real, Central Park. Remember, please never forget this. Central Park in the middle of Central Park was a village that was devoted to black people. It was a black, predominantly black village of black people who were thriving. And just as all villages and townships across this country um, at the turn of the century were just, just their, their whole, their all, their, they all met, many of them met anywhere near Okay, I was, I don't know what happened. The recording just stopped. That's why I was stuttering. Anyway, so my point was, never forget that in the middle of Central Park that you can enjoy today, there was a black village um, that was thriving um, and the rich white people took it from them and booted them out, which is what tends to happen, um, did happen to so many predominantly black villages and townships across the country. But then that's also the same thing that happened to our indigenous people who were booted out um, of the East Coast. All those indigenous tribes whose 
heritage ran deep. The blood ran through the soil, um, booted out of the East Coast and moved to, forced to move to um, the West. So anyhow, um, yeah, you cannot forget that when you're talking about that. And people like Bertha and George Russell made stuff like that possible. That monstrosity that they created, this big honking building that they made, that they created back then, which is lavish and beautiful. And, and, you know, there there are um, news articles that show you what still stands from that era those big old mansions um, and architecture that still remains from that era. Um, you got to look at it two ways. You have to look at it for the marbles that they were. They were really, these architects were taking these people's money, but then doing really creative things with it. But on the other hand, it's at the cost of a lot of the, the people who did not have a whole lot of money because there were not safety standards in place to protect them. Um, remember, remember, remember the jungle by Upton Sinclair, like talking about the meat industry um, and all of the ways in which the workers were not being supported. Like all of that was true at the same time. So you had these people that were that were getting it out the mud, in essence, like the George Russells, but they were getting it out the mud in the most shady way possible, being ruthless as all get out. And what we know is in 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 the season has been, the show has been renewed for a second season. You know it's going to get a third and a fourth, depending on how the second season goes. But um, if this first season is any indication, we're about to see George be really gully. Like, really gully. If we thought that he, in this last episode, we saw him um, dangle alone in front of somebody that he was going to lend it to so that he could go to his wife's party because he didn't want his wife's party to be empty. That's some cutthroat stuff. Like, what? I don't even know you like that. But to his credit, he's like, you know me enough to ask me for some money. So if you want this money, you better come to this party. Simple as that, right? So we're about to see him get real stupid and do some really dastardly things. We're also going to see his son um, flourish into an architect and probably but a romance with old girl from across the street. But I don't really care about that. Um, I just want to see, you know, and Bertha being cutthroat too. <sighs> even though I have problems with that portrayal, but whatever, she gets her wish. And all the hoity-toities of the, of, that she's been chasing all season have come to her party. Also, this download thing, this download thing is getting, what's it, the, the, Mrs. Van Ryan's son, who is a closeted man, is pursuing Bertha Russell's baby, like nobody's business. And she just came out, which means she could be, she can go on dates now and be married soon. This man is really trying to snap her up to hide the fact that he's gay, which again, it's a survival tactic that we know existed, but dad, you just hate to see it. You hate to see it because you know what she's signing up for. She's signing up for if she moves forward with this, and, and I, I have a feeling next epi- next season is going to be all about his pursuit of the baby, the baby Ryan, no, the baby Russell, and I wonder if his plan is going to be thwarted, but probably not because let's be for real in history, we know that there have been several gay men who've had whole families, many children 
and wives, but were whole gay men. And well, at this point, they're bi, right? But anyway, they've had, I don't know, like who's to judge their own sexuality? What we know is that they were living a double life is my point. Their sexuality is not the issue here. The duplicity is the issue here. And dude is openly and actively being duplicitous. He's scamming against this young girl. This teenage girl, he's scamming against her, against her. And like, isn't that what happened? Like, anyway. And then um, the whole storyline with um, the black woman whose name I've forgotten getting her baby back, her father separating her from her son, telling her that her son is dead, leading her to believe her son is dead all the while supporting her son because he didn't like who she was married to. That's some messed up stuff. And we'll hear more about that, I'm sure. I'm not trying to be unkind. I really want to see more of her journalism. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at with mine. Anyway, um, so yeah, Gilded Age ended well. Again, it's literally a show about social climbers, which is pretty hollow, but there's some storylines in there that are interesting. Oh my goodness, Mr. That guy that played old girl. Oh, I want him to get, I want him to fall flat. I do not want him to succeed at all, but he probably will. Um, The actor who plays him, he handsome. Well, if you listen to his voice, I think he's Australian. Maybe he's Australian. Like, talent is wasted. Well, your talent is not wasted, but like, we need to hear you in your regular speaking voice. Um, There's a little something there. You know what I'm saying? There's a little something, something there. Um, but, oh, he was trash in that show. Talking about, you know, the more I thought about it, we poor. I can't marry you, girl. Ooh, trifling. Anyway. Um, yeah, so we'll see what the second episode or the second season is going to be about. But you know, George, oh, Morgan Spector's fine behind. is going to be ruthless. Um, just ruthless in that next season. And Bertha, I think we're going to like her less. Like we, I ended the show rooting for her. I ended the season rooting for her. I think I'm not going to be rooting for her in the next season. Like not at all. And I also wonder if that baby that she fired is going to come back in some capacity. Because that's trifling. I really don't want to see her. Anyway, because um, she was miserable. Um, anyway. All right. I've talked enough about that. HBO is good for a good old epic. And The Gilded Age is a, certainly a terrific epic. Um, and all of the shows between HBO and HBO Max, all of the shows that are out, um, like, again, I've already told you, I cannot continue to watch Our Flag Means Death or whatever that show is just because it's a little too not my taste. So I ended up, though, giving Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, a chance, largely because, fun fact, I'm sure I've shared, I'm sure I've shared this before, but if you didn't know, my husband is a huge basketball fan and he's a Lakers fan right now because LeBron is on there. He would never admit this. He would never, if I ever get him, got him on this show, he would never admit that the only reason he's a Lakers fan right now is because LeBron is on the on the team. But like, that's what it is. That's what it is. So he's got all the Lakers memorabilia and, and or paraphernalia um, and stuff. But like, he openly says that uh, the Lakers are trash right now, but 
He is a basketball, he would never admit this, but he's also a basketball historian. He's also a football historian. Like if you ask him about a player from the 80s, he will know them. If you ask him about a player from the 70s, probably even the 60s, it might take him a minute, but he will be able to talk about that. It's because at the end of the day, he just absorbs that knowledge. We're both historians in our own way. He just enjoys sports knowledge, sports history. Uh, and, and by the way, he knows like baseball stats, soccer. I think he knows a little bit about hockey too, which is why he, he does not know about cricket and rugby but if you put him in a room and you give, gave him enough time he would get it he would know that history which eh, history buffs unite whatever anyway um but so I was like ooh, this is a show that we could watch because I just like how things are made the story behind a thing and history the histrionics of 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 stuffs I think I'm pretty sure I just made that up but anyway Anyway, we're going to leave that there. I just like the making of things. I like to build things in my personal life. I love building things. I don't really love the maintenance because that gets boring, but it's like a part of your life. But like, I like to build things. And so naturally being someone who's interested in history, I love how things were made. Um, Love learning how things were made. And things in this instance could be like literally anything, including a dynasty that is fleeting has a certain, a set amount of time that it could be successful before it dies. But like, fascinating, all the same to me. And then sports and sports history is something fascinating for my hubby. And so we began to watch this show. And so, yeah, I I think if you're not into basketball, there's a lot here for you because it's a whole lot more than basketball. There's mental health in this show, mental health. There's a whole conversation about mental health and anxiety, specifically anxiety and depression and trauma. Also violence. Also just being a scoundrel. There's a lot in here. Um being naive and taken advantage of, uh, sexism and how women navigated and got over. Um, there's a lot in here. So uh, there's, religion, there's a religious piece in here and the religious conversation in here too. There's actually a lot in here. So in the next segment, I'm just gonna, just gonna, just gonna talk a little bit about it, all right? So, okay, stay tuned. Okay, so winning time, the rise of the L.A. dynasty, which is kind of um, it's kind of uh, misleading because the Lakers have had more than one dynasty. But I guess if you're a sports fan, the dynasty that you're talking about is the one with magic in it Um, and total domination that they enjoyed for however many seasons they enjoyed it. Um, One of the things that we need to that I want to say is unequivocally, this show is about Jerry Buss, Dr. Jerry Buss, who fun fact is a freaking NASA scientist who stopped being a NASA scientist. He was that smart, like he knew a bunch of stuff, but stopped being a NASA scientist and went into real estate. Um, And then had a bright idea that he was gonna buy the Coliseum and the Lakers and turn them into a winning team. 
he was going to be an owner. And so it's about all of his exploits and how he gets the team to be where it is and all the personalities that he manages as a owner. And then it's also simultaneously about the rise of Isaac Johnson, a talented, gifted high schooler that is drafted into the NBA. No, freshman. He was a freshman, a college freshman drafted into the NBA um, from Michigan which not even Detroit, Michigan, some small town in Michigan. So he doesn't have a whole lot of, he's like a really big fish in a small pond going to the ocean and trying to make it, even though he's immensely talented trying to make it. And this guy is, uh, the person that plays um, Magic Johnson is Quincy Isaiah. And I will tell you now, I think the biggest challenge that this show not even the biggest challenge. The thing that has stuck out to me is Magic Johnson is like six and nine. And so while Quincy Isaiah looks like Magic Johnson favors him, Quincy Isaiah ain't nobody six nine, seven footer, almost a seven footer. Like it, it, anybody above six six, like if you are above six six, I don't care how close you are to seven footer, you might as well be seven foot to me. I'm five five and a half. You might as well be seven foot, right? Because it doesn't matter to me. After, after I will say, because my daddy is six six. After six six, nothing matters. You're just tall. Like my husband, and what is my husband six one? My daddy six six. Many of the men in my family hover in between about six six and six one. In that, many of them, not all of them, but many of them. So at a certain point, after six six for me, you just tall, and it don't matter how tall you are. And so. While, let me look at uh, Quincy Isaiah, the actor's height. Because you know what's on there. Meet Quincy Isaiah. And why am I bringing this up? Because Quincy Isaiah ain't, no, ain't nowhere near nobody's. That dude ain't even 6'5". You know what I mean? Like Quincy Isaiah is probably a good 5'9 at best. And I'm not trying to be unkind to that man at all. I'm really not. Hold on. Let me go into his IMDb. Maybe IMDb will tell me exactly how tall he is. And there's a reason why I'm saying this. Well, actually, I've already told you. He's 6'3", y'all. He's 6'3". Magic Johnson, just for clarity, Magic, how tall is Magic Johnson? Let's do Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. Bam. I told you Magic Johnson was 6'9". I... I don't know why I got that heated, but dude is 6'3". Magic Johnson is 6'9". My husband is 6'1". My daddy is 6'6". So I'm used to people being a little tall. 6'3 is not abnormal. It's not unusual. And some of my nephews, one of my nephews in particular, I'm sure he's 6'3". If he's not 6'3", he's like 6'2 and 8 inches. Like he's nearly there. Um, to 6'3". It's tall, but it's not 6'9 tall, which you might as well be 7... I'm about to cuss. You might as well be 7 foot, right? So here come Quincy Isaiah trying to act real tall. And again, I'm saying I'm not... The average height of the American male is what? 6'9? I mean 5'9? 5'10? Something like that. The average height of a tall... The average height of of an American woman is a, a U.S. woman is um, what, 
five eight or so. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, the average height is under six foot for for people who, for Americans. The average height is under six foot. So you are tall if you're above six foot. I'm not arguing that. What I'm saying is, how you gonna have somebody six three who fits under most, who fits through most doorways, who does not bang their head against ceilings, most ceilings, you know what I mean? How do you stretch him by what? Six inches, stretch him by six inches and make him bump into everything. So the issue, the issue I I see instantly, and I know everybody else sees it too, is that they're trying to stretch the six, three guy into a six, nine guy. And it just doesn't always work. Like they, they try to do the trick shots to make him look taller, but they end up when he gets close to average height people like John C. Riley is an average height man. How tall is this man? Oh, right. Well, it makes my point. John Riley, uh, um, John Riley is 6'2". So you mean to tell me Quincy, Quincy Isaiah is supposed to be 6'9", Magic Johnson, who towers over everyone. Here comes, but, but Quincy Isaiah himself is 6'3". John, John C. Riley is 6'2". He an inch shorter than the guy that plays Magic. But Magic Johnson himself is 6'9", so that illusion ain't working for me. So anytime they're in the same scene, unless you block it just so, which if you haven't watched this, you're getting to my point, they don't block it just so because it's nearly impossible. So what they end up having you do as a viewer is make believe that this man is 6'9", okay? Can you just be cool? That's what they want you to do. Like, there's certain angles where, like, he's... Quincy Isaiah as Magic Johnson is home in Michigan and he's walking down the steps and you see him ducking, you know, you see him ducking the the ceiling. And I don't doubt somebody who's 6'3 might have to duck a ceiling or two when you're walking down the stairs, depending on, you know, how many levels are in your house. I'm not going, I'm going to, I'll give you that. Um, But like, practically, he's not much taller than everyone else, which is not is couldn't be further from the truth because when you're six nine you are taller than everyone except for the person that's seven foot or the person that's also six nine you know what I mean so anyway that's just something that bothered me in the portrayal but at the end of the day it was it didn't bother me enough not to pay attention because as I said Quincy Isaiah's face is very favorable to Magic Johnson Magic Johnson's face was fuller rounder but like. The illusion is there for me and I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. So anyway, as I said, it's about Magic Johnson and him coming out of first year freshman, coming out of Michigan. I think Dearborn is where his university was, um, is. And so coming from cold Michigan, hard blue collar Michigan, moving to sunny California where everything goes and that transition is rough. Also, it's really interesting how they show in the first three episodes, they show him going through all the motions. So again, you can imagine somebody who's six, nine, first off, you sit, you stick out like a sore thumb, right? So boom, there's that. Then you're very, very talented. So boom, you stick out for your talent. Then you're also not unattractive. I'm not saying that Magic Johnson was not handsome. It just not handsome to me, 
but like not unattractive. Like I could appreciate how people with his smile and his height and athleticism, how that would be a huge draw for folks. Like I'm not stupid, but anyway, so like, you know, you are that deal for all intents and purposes. Like you are the star where you're from. And so all the attention that that would get, plus you're young um, and all the attention that would get and then being plopped through your talent because you are talented, plopped into this big old pond, this big old ocean where people have been there and been at this game longer than you. And so the only thing you do have basketball in common, you do have people paying attention to you in common, but you are still green. And so what we see in these first three episodes, we're reminded is that magic is green and magic is doing what a young green person does, which is make a lot of mistakes and loses confidence in himself not in his ability, but like literally himself and in, in being able to navigate this new world that he's in. He's, he's, out of his, he's out of his element and therefore uncomfortable. And so we see that even though like we see him trying to make new friends, some of the new friends he's making as particularly there's a basketball player who, so Magic is recruited and you guys may understand if you're not a basketball head, you know that there are only so many starting slots for certain positions on any team, right? Like in the case of a of basketball, there's you, no, in, in any team, there's the lead person and then there's a backup. And then like in the case of American football, there's a backup to the backup, right? There's usually a third string. They call it third string. And I don't know if this is true in, uh, European football or rugby, but I, it would stand to reason that you have your starters and then you have your backups and then you have the backup to the backup um, if you're that deep. And that's how you can have a roster of like 56, 60 people, but only have but so many starters out on the field, like have 12 starters out on the field because, y- you know, those are the top dogs that get paid all the money and then you have the backups. And so anyway, so in this context, Magic Johnson, the young Magic Johnson, fresh out of college, is it goes into the draft or fresh out of his freshman year, goes to enters the draft and is drafted by the L.A. Lakers. Um, And it's so interesting to me that back then they literally tossed a coin. And that's how you decided who was going to go where. So literally, uh, Magic Johnson could have been a, a, a Chicago he should could have, he could have been a bull. And I wonder what that would have been like. Cause he would, he'd still been in a city that he's not familiar with, but he wouldn't have been so far from home. Cause mission is just right above Illinois. Right. And Illinois sits on Lake Michigan, which is around the corner from Michigan itself. So anyway, it would have been interesting. Would we have gotten a Michael if magic was there? Probably would, would we have gotten a Michael at the, um, at Chicago? If Magic was went to Chicago or would we have gotten because of the series of events, would we have gotten a Michael Jordan playing for the Lakers? What would that have been like, y'all? What would that have been like? So the Lakers probably would have gotten a dynasty regardless. They still had a dynasty. It just would have been with a different person. But that's not what happened. So the Lakers, uh, because of a coin flip, 
got um, Magic Johnson and which is what Dr. Buss wanted. So let me go back to Dr. Buss. Well, hold on. Let me just finish this little line of thought. So when Magic was drafted, he was drafted to play in a particular position that was already occupied by somebody who, who was active and famous and playing. And so when I say that Magic befriends people, he ends up befriending the guy whose job he's trying to take. And naturally, because he's older and wiser and slicker, he begins to get in Magic's head and almost it convinces Magic to go back to college. Which, I mean, if you're scared for your job, I can understand you being desperate, but that just felt che- that felt cheesy as all get out. Anyway, but it doesn't work. Dr. Buss ends up, ends up um, convincing Magic to stay, which leads me to, I think that's the last thing I want to say on Magic, other than we see Magic and Cookie's relationship play out. They are on again, off again. When he gets, they were on, they were on. And then when he gets drafted, Cookie's like, I'm not going to be a part of this because I don't know what your life is going to be like. And you're probably going to be cheating on me anyway. And then that devastates magic. And so he goes off and tries to become magic and tries to this whole time. I guess what we're what the sense that we're getting is he in, in spite of doing all of the young and dumb stuff that he was doing, he's still very much in love with Cookie um, and Cookie is going to be his woman and we know that he's married to cookie now so but it'll be interesting to see how that relationship twists and turns and oh by the way i cannot believe i did not mention this i think i mentioned it last episode but the whole show begins with magic being in the doctor's office and i think many people might have missed it my husband missed it because y'all forget magic johnson is living with hiv it's undetectable which can happen, but he's living still with HIV. Y'all forgot that? It was a huge announcement in 1990. So the show opens in 1990 with him about to make this showtime. Cause remember, um, well, you might not remember, but I remember growing up and knowing that Magic Johnson's name was Showtime. Um, Cause I guess I thought Magic was his given name, but it wasn't. Um, <laughs> um, Anyway, um, I digress. But like the move, the show opens, the series opens with him coming out of the doctor's office with the news that he knew, the, the news that he's living with HIV. They don't say it. But again, if you know Magic's story, you know it. And so you know that that's where we're going to climb to at a certain point. We're going to go there at a certain point. But we're not there yet. We have to get to him being drafted in the first place. And in getting him drafted in the first place and him breaking it up with Cookie, but still being like Cookie breaking up with him, but him still desperately being in love with Cookie and wanting to be connected with him, with her, he begins to do some, to engage in some erratic behavior in an effort to be cool. And he's young and dumb, remember? And so we see him have some sexual exploits. And we put a pin in that because again, we started with him coming from the, I think it was Cedar sinai or whatever, whatever big LA hospital for stars that stars go to after having received his diagnosis. And somebody who we think is his manager perhaps, or his handler is weeping openly because remember in 1990, HIV was considered to be a death sentence. 
We know it's not the death sentence that everybody once thought it was. And, and to be quite honest with you, it once was because they just didn't have any antiviral medication out there um, to support someone's wellness. But like, yeah, he, the person that was sitting next to him was openly weeping because they thought that that was it. Because up until that, the previous decade, many thousands gone. This is a different many thousands gone. So it's not a reference to the mid-Atlantic slave trade. We're, this is a reference to the many thousands of people globally that died in the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and early 90s because of lack of education and lack of resources and treatment. And so anyway, it starts with a bang and then you know the show is going to be everything. It's going to be pretty good. And then you go through and so I, I will end it with magic by saying, you know, we see him making young and dumb choices. Um, we see him trying to grow into himself, but he's not confident in himself at the same time because he's a kid. He's freaking 19 years old with all of this talent. Everybody's putting all of this money in his pocket, but underneath the cocky veneer is a, a fish out of water. And so we will see this twist and turn a fish out of water. Whose main love, the only place where he's super confident is on the court. Like he per, per, flexes being super competent everywhere else, but like all intent for all intents and purposes, he's so naive. We see him being naive. We see him being hustled by a pimp in the third episode. We see him hustled by a pimp, you know, and that will, again, because we saw the very opening scene, we know that comes to get him later. Maybe not that incident, but that, that pattern of behavior bites him in the behind later. Anyway, but let's let's leave Magic Johnson for there because the thir- first three episodes really were about his confidence, him coming out of, you know, being a fish out of water and trying to find his footing in this new land um, and in this new team and in the big leagues. Right. Um, and trying to prove his trying to prove himself and trying not to let people down. So that's where we leave Magic in those first three episodes. Let's go come back to Dr. Buss, which again, this show is as much about magic as it is about Dr. Buss. Dr. Buss is the owner. He becomes the owner of what was considered to be a money pit in the Lakers team and the Coliseum. Not making any money, took, books were cooked and kept terribly and he, he continued to cook the books until he was made the thing profitable. But you, you're introduced to him and he's a playboy. You, you see him sleeping with Playboy bunnies. He's got a comb over, but he's also got this optimism, this seemingly endless, I'm finna make anything happen. But also I'm the smartest guy in the room, but I'm not finna lord that over you. I'm the hungriest guy in the room. And so I'm actually okay with that because I actually do think that uh, John C. Riley is a pretty great actor and probably he's doing more justice to Dr. Buss than what he is. He's portraying this person perhaps as per- perhaps he's doing him more justice than in reality, but he's portraying this person as somebody who had a hard life growing up and is eternally optimistic and also eats fear for breakfast, like not in a douchey way, but just like. I'm finna just go balls to the wall. Excuse my phrase. I'm just finna go hard because why not? I have been a NASA scientist. I'm a mathematician. 
this is all a bunch of probability anyway and a whole bunch of math problems. I love math. So let me just simplify everything into math problems and let me not worry. Which is dangerous, especially when you end up owing people a lot of money. You got to beg, borrow money from other people, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. But that's what he was doing to achieve his dream because he believed, hoped against hope, that he would be, he saw a franchise that not only he could turn into a winning franchise, but could unseat Red Auerbacher, who is the owner, who was the owner of the Celtics, unseat that dynasty unseat them and become, make his company into his franchise into a winning franchise. And so it's this optimism from the very beginning. We meet him laying in the bed at the Playboy Bunny Ranch with a woman who he's just had relations with the night before. Like that's how we're introduced to Dr. Buss. But then, so when, just when you think he's just this sex starved, creepy, weird person, you start to learn that, oh shoot, in his previous, in his previous life, he was a freaking NASA scientist. And before that, he was grossly um, abused by his father. And you get the sense that his, in the first three episodes, you get the sense that his mother was abused as well. But like he was grossly abused by his father and developed a persona to deal with the trauma by believing in himself against all odds and becoming, making selfish choices to support himself. Like you, you get the sense that he's a person that does look out for other people, does care about other people, but also does not care about other people more than he cares about himself. And so sometimes the choices that he makes end up hurting other people but he's, it's a survival mechanism for him. And I could be like really just projecting onto this show, but I get the sense that, so Magic Johnson is just this kid who's trying to figure out what life is and he gets himself into trouble in the process. Um, Dr. Buss seems to be a person living with a whole lot of trauma that takes, takes a lot of risks that gets off on taking those risks that end up paying off so as a way to build up his confidence. That's the best way I can describe it. It's super risky. But like we know when people engage in that risky behavior, it's because they're searching and chasing something and it's not always greatness. And I don't it genuine. And again, this is where I say, I think John C. Riley portrays him a little bit better than he actually is because he's just a bomb actor, but I'm feeling more in this portrayal of him that this is just an older version of himself protecting the younger version of himself and optimism, the optimism of his youth and the magic of his youth and building and creating whatever, driving all the cars, having all the beautiful women, you know, moving around in the world the way he wants to, because this is all a big game anyway. This is all a big fairy tale anyway. But at the end of the day, a very shrewd business person who does not mind getting his hands dirty and also, oh, my phone died. Who's also um, got a chip on his shoulder, um, but that also can recognize someone else who has a chip on his shoulder and can commiserate with them. And so you get the sense that Dr. Buss and Magic Johnson build, forge a very deep relationship, deep connections 
um, that you hope to see later, or at least I hope to see later in the show. But having said all of that, outside of the connections of those two people, you begin to learn a lot about the making of the Lakers dynasty circa what 1989 or whatever, whenever magic was drafted. So not only was Dr. Buss cooking the books, <laughs> meaning he was, uh, fraudulently reporting out income that he didn't have or not reporting losses that he actually did have um, so that he could stay afloat and continue to be in business. Um, So he was doing all of that. He was also trying to build this fantastic team um, with adequate coaches. And I'll just pause here for a second to, to share that there is a coach that is portrayed here. It's Jerry West, who's played by Jason Blake, who plays him pretty well, actually. Um, Who's played by Jason Blake. And um, Jerry West is apparently, um, well, not even apparently, this is true. So he was a bomb um, Lakers player. It, Magic wasn't drafted in 1989. Dra- Magic was drafted like 1979, 1980, something like that. Anyway, um, but Jerry West, if you know anything about basketball, or even if you don't, you know the logo of the NBA. The logo of the NBA is that white silhouette outlined person who looks like they are a dribbling the ball at speed, like they're running down the court to shoot the basket to do something, right? That person is Jerry West. That figure that you see is Jerry West because he was such a great ball player that never won a ring in his life. He played for the Lakers. He played his heart out for the Lakers, but he never won. The Lakers continuously up until Magic was drafted, I'm assuming, they continuously lost to the reigning dynasty, which was the um, Celtics. And so Jerry West, we're introduced to Jerry West as this person that is a celebrated basketball player who's also now a coach, the coach, the head coach for the Lakers. But we're introduced to his trauma as well. Like Dr. Buss, he was traumatized by his father too. His father was... um, Shoot, there's a whole lot of trauma. I think I mentioned that before, but there's a whole lot of uh, family abuse and trauma. And uh, Jerry West was abused by his parents. And as a result, um, again, I'm not a clinician, so I'm not diagnosing anything, but it feels like the trauma of his childhood led him to be um, live with crippling anxiety and depression. And so, excuse me, we, and, and probably PTSD too. So we see him going through all of these changes, this, this weird, like he's sad when he should be happy. Um, he's crying when he should be ecstatic. Um, there's a moment where he, we see him in a bar and he's crying and there's a, there's a repass happening at the bar and he's mistaken for a mourner. And it's actually the night of a terrific title that he's won or something like that. And he's getting a lot of praise in the news media, but he's miserable, completely, 
utterly miserable and he's mistaken for a mourner because he's that miserable sitting at the bar, even though he's won this awesome thing. He is living with crippling anxiety and depression or probably PTSD. And in the first three episodes, I actually get a little, I'm a little unnerved by his performance only because it seems so unhinged. I'm, the actor himself is doing a fabulous job. It's just unnerving for me to see because you also recognize that in the 80s, people were secretly going to a therapist. They weren't openly going to therapy. They were secretly doing all of that stuff. And then when you consider like the machismo that existed in that in, in around sports at that time, like there was no way that a person like Jerry West was actually ever going to be seen by a professional, even though everybody around him knew that he had these massive temper tantrums where he would just destroy things, his office, bust windows. And then there would be these periods where he would lock himself in his room and never come out. Well, or not come out for weeks at a time. That was scary to me. Like, I don't know. I don't know if it was unnerving to see on screen for anybody else, but that was not pleasant for me to see. Um, Because it just felt dangerous. It just, it was uncomfortable to watch. And maybe that was supposed to be the case. It was supposed to be uncomfortable to watch because in the third episode, no, at the end of the second episode and going into the third episode, we know that Jerry West is trying to walk away from the Lakers. And Jerry Buss doesn't recognize that the reason why Jerry West is trying to walk away from the Lakers is because at the it's at the insistence of his wife who no longer wants to see him. She recognizes that a lot of the, he's going through all the stress and anxiety around the season, the, the athletic season. And she's like, I want my husband back. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't keep seeing you like this. You can't keep locking your, you go these long periods of time where you lock yourself in, into away and I don't see you and we're not intimate we're not we're not in love like we're not even affectionate toward each other because you're so depressed and so for the sake of his marriage really but really should have been the sake of his own sanity and his well-being he puts in his retirement papers and then as punishment because remember Jerry is building this dynasty He knows he's building a dynasty and he thinks he's got the best coach in Jerry West. In this portrayal, he tries to punish him. But again, there's just not enough. Number one, there's not enough compassion. Uh, And number two, nobody was really, excuse me, number two, nobody was really talking about mental health like that in a significant way back then. So you see this dynamic and then you switch back to Jerry West, who's, who you see tries to go after a very famous collegiate coach in, in Las Vegas um, to try to teach the Lakers after Jerry West step, takes a step back. Um, but then you see the elements of the mob. Something really gruesome happens at the end of the third episode. Very gruesome. Um, excuse me, and then you come to know that or at least I come to know that the mob of the movies was like real in the 80s. And it's obviously it's still real now. The Italian mob, though, was like real for real hardcore in the 80s doing some mighty wild stuff. 
um, especially if you mess with their money and their enterprises, which again, we know that Las Vegas was built by mobsters, mobster money. We know that. It's just, we're reminded that mobsters were still very much connected to Las Vegas in the 80s. And so in the show, we see what that connection could look like, especially if you run afoul to them. And so in the, in the last, the, the, the end of the third episode, we see something that I wish I hadn't seen, but I mean, you need to watch it. Um, because the context, actually that whole episode is interesting to say the very least. Um, because there's, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of a, of a storyline happening that if you're not paying attention, you'll miss and then the ending won't make any sense to you. So make sure that you're paying attention when you get to the third episode. The other piece here is, so I told, so Jerry Buss is a womanizer. Dr. Jerry Buss is a womanizer. He's, he's unapologetically played that way, but he's also seemed to seen as a family man. Despite his womanizing view, he's also seen as a family man and he hired his daughter to work for the Lakers. And so you see this family dynamic because she's not just getting this job through nepotism. What they go out of their way to show is that she knows her, she knows her stuff. She knows what she's talking about. And so you also see her trying to navigate as a woman, but then also the boss's daughter um, and that complicated scenario, trying to navigate, trying to prove her worth, but then also trying to help her father make this thing successful because she knows she in the third episode, she finds out that he's cooking the books with his mother. Believe it or not, his mother is doing his taxes and cooking the books for him. Um, and so she learns about this and she's even more motivated. So not, she already has the motivation to prove that she's not just the boss's daughter and she just doesn't know anything, prove it to him that she knows things and then prove it to her colleagues that she it can be trusted and she knows things. But then also she really wants, she has a vested interest in making sure that the Lakers do a really good job because her grandmother and, and father are cooking the books and are jeopard could, they could lose everything. And she's finally got her shot to really like prove herself. And so um, she really is trying to do a, a really good deed. And so, um, you know, we see that climb. And so that's an interesting storyline. The other storyline we see is Pat Riley. Now I confess, I am not a basketball historian. I do not know, to be honest with you, I don't, I know that Pat Riley is a famous coach. What I don't know is, I, I Clearly, by his introduction in the third episode, he at some point was connected to the Lakers. He played after playing. He played for the Lakers for five years, is what I learned in the in the episode. Um, but we see that he's been retired and he wants to get back to work in basketball. He loves the game. Now, Pat Riley is played by Adrian Brody. Hey. What we learn about Adrian, not Adrian Brody, what we learn about Pat Riley is that this guy's living with trauma too. Jiminy freaking Christmas. So we've got the only, the only major character that isn't living with trauma is, is Magic Johnson himself, and he's just young. He grew up in a stable household, blue-collar household in Michigan, like full of love. Like it's, it's so interesting how, you know, in a lot of news media portrayals and and movie portrayals, it's the black kid that's growing up 
in an unloving, abusive household. But like in this reality, um, which is probably, you know, anyway, more people. Anyway, I'm not going to make that argument. You understand. The portrayal is different than at reality when, we, when it comes to Magic. Magic grew up in a loving home. He's just young and dumb versus these affluent or at least famous men, these white men who grew up in such abusive houses. Um, Pat, what we know about Pat Riley is that his father was a baseball player and was abusive and unhappy because he wasn't as great as he wanted to be. And so Pat Riley was always trying to vie. And again, this is a dramatization, but maybe there's some truth in there, I'm sure. I'm sure Pat Riley had a hand in this show, especially as it relates to his portrayal. So Pat Riley grows up with an abusive father who's just sad that he wasn't more famous and didn't achieve what he wanted to achieve in, in baseball. Then we've got Dr. Buss, whose father... He has a story of his father making him dig a ditch to the point where his knuckles bled. And then his father drives by him and just laughs at him. He's just digging the ditch for no reason other than his daddy wanted him to. And he was trying to chase, trying to vie for his father's love and affection that he never gave. And then you've got Jerry West who grew up in an abusive home too. Like the trauma that we don't talk about trauma in a meaningful way is just sad because while this show is about the making of the Lakers, all I see is a bunch of people living with trauma and not really dealing with it and that that untreated trauma manifesting itself in different risky behaviors as an adult. And again, I'm not speaking as a clinician because I'm not one. It's just being around clinicians and being around mental health and, and the study of mental health and certainly supports for people who are trying to find their way to wellness and maintain wellness, whatever that looks like for them, you learn some things. And one of the things that we know is that there are a whole bunch of adults of a whole, like whole generations, that boomer generation walking around with untreated trauma. Just whole life. 60-something years old, 70 years old, looking back on what happened to you when you were a teenager and weeping because you come to understand that that was abuse. Just openly weeping in your 70s, living 40, 50 years, thinking that everything was Jake and then waking up one day and because you're talking with a therapist or you know, you're talking with someone who has seen therapist. And, and uh, themselves, they work with therapists and so can have a better insight into helping you find your way to wellness. You have an epiphany. This is how that happens. You're in your freaking 30s and 40s, living life, thinking everything is Jake. All the whole time you are sitting up here trying to disprove and, and get one up on your parent who was completely abusive to you. Maybe not physical, but definitely verbally and emotionally abusive. It's wild to me. I, and maybe, again, that's probably not a theme that they want you to get, but daggone it, that's something that just pops out to me like a sore thumb. So I'm interested to hear more because Pat Riley, in a fit, destroys his whole, like, for, it's not normal for you to just, in one of these scenes, Pat Riley destroys his whole garage, literally takes the thing apart. The garage apart. That's not normal. That's not normal behavior. 
Dr. Buss is actively cooking his books and engaging in riskier and riskier behavior. That's not normal. You know what I mean? That's not normal. Jerry West literally launches his um, NBA Most Valuable Player trophy through a glass window because he's mad. That's not normal. But in the show, it's, and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe they're spending some time talking about this because they want you to understand that there's a lot to this story. But like, like I said, the Jerry West piece was just uncomfortable for me to see because that just felt too real. Um, the Dr. Bus piece, on the one hand, you could just say, oh, he's just a reckless playboy but then you like get into it and you're like oh he's fighting the image of his father he's trying to best his father like all roads lead to being better than his father that he hates and then you're introduced and and we're only introduced to Pat Riley in the third episode so we don't know the total story there but we do know that he keeps the bat that his father threw Uh, like a game-winning bat that his father threw from his career, his time in the majors, threw in the fire. He keeps that bat as a reminder of what? I'm not 100% sure. We, I I imagine we'll come to know why he keeps it later, but doggone it, that's just a lot to maintain. That's a lot. So I say, this is why I think everybody should be watching it. Every, well, Maybe this is not for everybody, but more people, if you're not a sports fan, you should be watching this show because it's more than just sports. There's a lot there. There's a lot to see. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, And plus, even if you know a little bit about the story, to me, I find it interesting to understand more aspects aspects of the story than what you thought were there. Um, Yeah. So anyway, that's the first three episodes of Winning Time, the, the Lakers dynasty or the rise of the Lakers dynasty. Um, yeah, so I hope you do watch it. Um, if you've watched the first three episodes and you have any comments that you'd like to share, go ahead and, and click the, the link in the show notes to send me a message. Um, and I will read it and address it in the next episode um, or listen to it and address it in the next episode. When you leave a message, it comes directly to me through the app. So nothing fancy happens. You don't even have to download the app to leave a message. Just click the link and leave a message. Um, also, but if you don't want to leave a message and you just want to send a little love my way, that's fine too. You can leave a favorable review on the show by clicking the purple app and then reviewing the thing. Um, giving me four or five stars. I'd appreciate that. Um, anything less, you're just being rude. Um, so you can keep it. Um, but yeah, I would appreciate positive reviews because ultimately that helps me continue to do this, keep up this, this habit that I have of completing this this um doing the show every week um and i'm coming up on my fourth anniversary of doing this again it's a hobby um this is not a big time thing for me this is just something fun that i enjoy doing and i episodes every single week um which i don't know if that schedule is going to change because you know i'm going through the fertility process and it might need to change but for now i'm going to keep it every week um Yeah, I just might need to make changes to make sure that there's an episode every week. But yeah, for now, I'm just going to keep the thing every week. But uh, continue to share episodes with folks that you think might find it enjoyable. 
You're welcome to engage me on the mental health conversation because I know that some of you are clinicians or studying to be clinicians. I'd love to have responsible conversations with you about mental health. That would be fun um, for me, especially as we're moving into April, which is not super far off from Mental Health Awareness Month um, in the United States. So eager to have that conversation. Uh, look open to having that conversation. Look forward to it. But anyway, um, and if you don't feel like leaving a message or rating it, just share this episode with somebody you think might dig it. So anyway, I appreciate you immensely. Have a wonderful day. Take a breath. Go do something fun. Eat something you really like. Take a nap. Go chill. You earned it. Because you need it. And that's enough. That's Sometimes that's all you need is just to know that everybody needs a break and you can decide when you want to take one. And so whenever you decide is a good enough time. So anyway, enjoy your break. Until next time.